Well, then, let's uh, turn back to this uh, dream again and its interpretation in Daniel chapter 2. And verse 34, that's page 1020, Daniel 2, at verse 34. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. A stone cut out without hands. Now, last time we were together around the Word of God and the book of Daniel, we began to look at this dream. And uh, you'll remember that the image Nebuchadnezzar saw, the composite image made of different metals and lastly of uh, clay as well, this composite image represented the four great kingdoms of the ancient world. Um, chapter 7 and 8 of Daniel actually confirm that to be the case, but in any case, it's the four successive kingdoms of the ancient world. Babylon, first of all, which is the only one he specifically defines, then the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, then the kingdom of Greece, and last of all, the powerful iron kingdom of Rome. Now, we looked last time particularly at the significance of the appearance of the image. First of all, uh, most strikingly, it is in the form of a man. That reminds us that these successive kingdoms in human history are essentially humanistic kingdoms. They exalt man uh, in a way they worship man. Man is at the center of man-made kingdoms. The second thing about the kingdom is that its appearance was awesome or fearful. Humanistic kingdoms produce the fear of man. And then it was also splendid or it dazzled. It was attractive. It had its own glory. All these kingdoms, these man-centered humanistic kingdoms, were glorious kingdoms in their own way. You'll remember when the devil tempted Jesus that he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. There is something in them all that dazzled. Humanism and man is like that. He exalts himself. But we saw too that all these kingdoms were finite. I'm sure the kings at the head of each one of them thought that their own kingdoms would last forever. But Daniel is reminding Nebuchadnezzar that that is not the case. Humanistic kingdoms rise and fall. Human kings come and they go. Each one fades into another, but collectively they are all destroyed. 
and they are all utterly destroyed, so that there is no trace left of them. And that takes us where we want to come to today, to this mysterious stone of verse 34. You watched Nebuchadnezzar while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image and, of course, shattered the kingdoms. Now, it's difficult to know how to approach this, really, because there are so many different interpretations of these things. And that can sometimes, well, obviously confuse us, but it can sometimes disillusion us, too. But it's important to try just to stick to what's said and see if God's self, um, with God's help, what we can make of it. And I think it's best to begin with what all Christians agree on. And that is that the stone represents the kingdom of God. However we understand that, leave that for the moment, but it represents the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Christ, you could say. Or even Christ himself. You'll remember how the Metals are identified not simply with the kingdom, but with the ruler of the kingdom at any given time. For example, uh, the head of the image is the Babylonian Empire, but Daniel says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. So the king and the kingdom are one. The king represents the kingdom and its glory. So by saying that this is the kingdom of God, we are also saying that the stone represents its king, the Lord Jesus Christ. But sadly, that's where the consensus actually ends. And like I said, it's not easy to do justice to the differing views, but I want us just nonetheless to have a look at them. There are, broadly speaking, two ways of interpreting what the stone actually does. And the first, I think, we can describe simply as futuristic. And according to this futuristic understanding, the work of this stone has not actually happened yet. The statue has not been destroyed. In fact, the statue has not even been struck. According to the futuristic understanding, if you like, the coming of the stone is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes a second time, he will smash these kingdoms and smash them utterly. The reason it's interpreted like that is because uh, the people who do so lay a lot of emphasis on the ten toes of the image. And their understanding is that the Roman Empire, although it comes to an end, essentially continued in the form of uh, ten distinct kingdoms which came from it, uh, which constituted eventually the Holy Roman Empire, as it's usually referred to in the Middle Ages, which is, of course, true. But the people who hold to this idea also hold that at some point in the future there will be, again, ten very distinct kingdoms. And, of course, people became particularly alert at the time of the EEC when there were 10 countries constituting it, and they saw this as the revival, essentially, of the Roman Empire. 
but in any case, they expect ten distinct powers to arrive and a figurehead to be over them, who is the Antichrist. And when it says, or when Daniel says, in verse 44, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, they take that to be a reference to the ten toes of the image. In the days of these ten kings, with the Antichrist ruling over them, the Lord Jesus Christ will return in his second coming. And then, depending on your view of last things, and forgive me if this gets a little bit complicated, there are two ways in which things work themselves out. First of all, according to uh, pre-millennials, Christ, when he comes, will set up his own thousand-year kingdom on this earth with Jerusalem at its center and himself ruling over it. That is what premillennials believe and that is what they expect. So the stone smashes the statue and then Jesus sets up his thousand-year kingdom. Others, however, believe that when Jesus comes, he will simply destroy all existing kingdoms, humanistic kingdoms, and he will immediately judge the earth. And he will establish a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, hence the mountain uh, that covers the whole earth. Now, there are uh, difficulties with these views, and I don't want to spend too long going into it. I think it's enough to say uh, first of all, that in terms of setting up the millennial kingdom, uh, this millennial kingdom, which is supposed to last a thousand years, is then followed by a war, uh, ultimately at Armageddon, and forces arraigning themselves uh, against the Lord again. That's hard to square with the image being scattered and completely destroyed. Uh, according to this image here, when the stone smashes the statue, it grows and becomes a mountain, and there is no particular sign of any opposition again. There's also the difficulty that, and I think this is the major difficulty, the difficulty that the coming of Christ is represented here as a stone. And it's hard to get away from the idea that there's an element of surprise in the whole thing. When the stone is rolling towards the image, there is not the faintest trace that it's going to be able to do such damage. When it hits the, the feet of the statue, you would say, so what? The last thing you expect is the actual relationship between the impact of that stone and the eventual fate of the statue. I mean, how long it takes the statue to actually disintegrate, we are not told. How long it takes the stone to become a mountain, we are not told. And critically, we're not told these things. But the point is that with the impact of the stone, there is a fracture, which ultimately leads to the statue being merged together and scattering to the winds. And gradually, I believe gradually, little by little, the stone grows. So there's something about the size of the stone and the appearance of the stone that makes us think that it can't really be the second coming. Stone. 
There's nothing in stone to impress, is there, in comparison with gold and silver and bronze and iron. There's nothing in this stone kingdom to dazzle you. We're told that the statue dazzled you. We're told nothing at all to that effect in connection with the stone. This fifth kingdom is not impressive in the way that the first kingdoms were impressive. Now, as far as I can see, I have to say that I think that is totally inconsistent with the descriptions of the second coming that we have in the Scripture. For example, in Matthew 25, 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, is that consistent with a little stone smashing into the feet of a statue? Not at all. Matthew 16, 27 Again, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Again, that's hardly a stone. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet. Again, it's hardly a stone. What about the oldest prophecy of all? The prophecy given by Noah's great-grandfather, seventh generation from Adam. The oldest prophecy in the Bible, although it doesn't appear until near the end of the Bible. You have it in the little letter of Jude. Enoch said, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. This coming is glorious, it's powerful, it's visible. So much so that according to Scripture, every eye shall see him. It doesn't matter where you're located on the earth. It doesn't matter at all. Every eye shall see him. And the enemies of the Lord will seek shelter when they see him coming. Revelation makes that very plain. With the opening of the sixth seal, we're told that the sky itself receded as a scroll. And every mountain and island moved out of its place, a cosmic convulsion. The kings of the earth were told, and the great men, and the rich men, and the commanders, and the mighty men, and the slaves as well, hid themselves in the mountains and in the rocks. And while they're hiding in the mountains and the rocks and in the caves, they say, fall on us. Had they, had they prayed to God? Had they prayed to God, but instead they're praying to the hills, fall on us, hide us from the face of the Lamb, from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, all that is connected with the Lord's return, and it's utterly inconsistent with this idea of a small stone destroying a statue. And to be honest, I think that's enough to make it an open and shut case. What Daniel is seeing here is not the second coming of the Lord. It is the first. And it's a surprise. <clears throat> I mean, when you saw young David uh, with, the, with the sling and putting the stone in the sling and letting the stone go, you would never expect what was going to happen at all. You wouldn't dream that it would catch 
this giant, this colossus of a man in the only weak, vulnerable part that was exposed, that he would bring him crashing down to earth. You just never thought it. There was such a a disproportion between this young stripling, this young man, with no armor and a single stone. There's no relationship between that and what he was actually able to achieve when he destroyed the giant and he cut off his head. That's what Daniel's bringing before us, and none of that is relevant to the second coming. So, if it is the first coming, then I want us to note a few things. First of all, I want you to notice the origin of this kingdom of Christ. In verse 47, Daniel says, sorry, it can't be verse 47, uh, verse 34 You watched while a stone was cut out without hands. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands. And we're told elsewhere that it was cut out of a mountain. Which one is it? 45. Yes, 45. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands... It broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The origin of the kingdom, it is cut out of a mountain. <clears throat> now, there seems to be no reason for saying that unless it means something. It would be sufficient to say that the stone simply appeared, but we're told that it was cut out of a mountain from the same substance as the mountain. I suppose maybe there the mountain brings before us the cosmic rule of God, his fixed eternal decree and purpose. Out of this cosmic mountain, a little stone is cut. Well, it's cut without human hands. But the point is that the kingdom is not of this world. It comes into this world. It interacts with it. It comes into it very forcibly, all right. But it's not of the world at all. And that's true of both the kingdom and its king. Neither are of this world. Uh, You'll remember Christ's famous words to Pilate. There was, of course, always the accusation in the background that the the Lord was seeking to overthrow um, kingdoms and their kings in, in a human sense. And he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, he said, my servants would fight. We'd fight with a sword. There would be an armed struggle going on just now. But he says, my kingdom is not from here. And of course, last Sabbath night, when we looked at the high priestly prayer, we noted Christ's words, I am not of the world. Of course, he said about Christians too, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So this kingdom does not originate on this earth. That is why it's called the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is in this world, and I think that's one of the great mistakes that the premillennialists make, and I don't mean to be unkind or to unchurch them or anything, that they're good people, obviously, who believe these things. But nonetheless, they make this great mistake, that they always think that somehow Christ is not a king yet, that his kingship was rejected, And until the church age is over, 
he is not effectively king. He is not effectively king until he comes back the second time. And then he will establish the kingdom on the earth. But no, according to the scripture, the kingdom of heaven is here. It's here. It's a present reality. It's unlike the other kingdoms of the world. Granted, obviously so. But it's still a reality. But it doesn't have its origin on this earth at all. It's not humanistic. And you as a Christian, you belong to this kingdom. You are not of this world either. I think I emphasized that last Sabbath evening. How important it is to understand and to remind yourself of it all the time. I am not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. My king is not of this world. My constitution and my laws are not of this world. My brothers and my sisters are not of this world. You belong to a kingdom that originates elsewhere. It exists on the earth, but it doesn't belong here. The character of the kingdom, well, we're told that it was cut without hands. I think that's a reference to the fact that this kingdom is simply not shaped by man at all. The rest of the kingdoms were in the fine appearance of a man. Men, and of course I mean by that man and woman, men shape their kingdoms. They shape them to reflect themselves. They make their own laws according to their own wisdom and their own understanding. Humanistic, well, therefore rationalistic. It's our own hands that make our kingdoms. We make our political institutions. We make our culture. We shape our culture. We, we, we. Man who loves himself. Remember, it's the ultimate idolatry, your own love of self. But this kingdom is not like that. It's cut out without hands. No human hand. It is God's wisdom that shapes the kingdom. It reflects God's image and God's glory. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the same. He is not according to man. He doesn't govern his kingdom as other kings would. He is different. He is the great king. He is the great shepherd of his sheep. He rules with loving kindness and with tender mercies. He is the prince of peace. And he establishes laws that are holy and just and good. And he himself is not shaped by man's hands. He comes into this world from another world. To do thy will, I take delight, O thou my God that art. So the origin of the kingdom is otherworldly, and its character is according to God. The appearance of the kingdom is the next thing that strikes us. It is stone. And as I hinted earlier, it just doesn't impress, and it doesn't dazzle. It's not designed to impress the eye. It's not designed to appeal to the flesh. The kingdoms of the world are. Remember the devil showed the kingdoms, I mentioned that earlier, and the glory of them. And what is the glory of the worldly kingdoms? Well, Jesus defines that for us. The Apostle John defines it for us too in the letter. And it so happens in God's providence that it ties in with what we were looking at last Sabbath evening. All that is in the world is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life, the show of life, the glamour, the glitz of life. It's hard to find a word, but it's funny. Although it's hard to find a word, you know, you know exactly what it means. 
But this kingdom is different. It's not concerned with human pomp and ceremony. Even the services of worship are not to be as the world would have them. The services of worship are, of course, when this kingdom gathers. This kingdom gathers worldwide. It's gathering today worldwide. We sometimes forget that, but it is. It's gathering worldwide. We appear formally in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And this worship service is a formal worship service. People want to move towards informality. That's oxymoronic. There's no such thing as an informal worship service in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is a public gathering. Of, it's an assembly of the Lord's people to give him his tribute and to bring him his glory and his honor. When we do so, we do it reverently and formally, but we don't do it with the trappings that the world would use on such occasions of state. God's kingdom is run in the world on different principles. There is a different emphasis. emphasis. He who is great among you, he says, let him be as your servant. My kingdom is not of this world, and my kingdom is not like this world. How true that was when the King Jesus appeared in this world. When he was born as a child, yes, granted, he was given gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. He was given these things by faith. I think his family probably had to use these gifts to maintain themselves when they were in Egypt. But certainly there was nothing in the rest of his life that was characterized by that. No gold, no frankincense, no myrrh. He never looked at any point like Nebuchadnezzar did on his throne, like Belshazzar did on his throne, like Artaxerxes on his throne, Alexander the Great on his Greek throne, or the great Caesars on their throne. Never looked like that. His kingdom never looked like that. No, there was no form or comeliness. There was no beauty that we should desire. When he was hung there as king of the Jews, and the inscription was written over his head in Greek, in Latin, and in Hebrew, the three great languages of the ancient world, when the proclamation was made openly, behold, the king of the Jews, who would have thought it? When he hung there, that was his throne. I've highlighted that before, that the cross was set up as a mock throne, even with a little seat on it, to prolong the agony. But there he was with a crown of thorns, with an inscription proclaiming his identity, a so-called member of his nobility on his right hand, and a member of his nobility on his left hand. And they mocked, and they bowed the knee. That's what our king looked like. And that's how his kingdom must always exist in this world. It must always be different from the kingdoms of this world. We esteemed him not as a stone. But you'll notice the power of the kingdom. Here's the surprise. It destroys all other human kingdoms. It destroys their humanism. It destroys their pride. It destroys their arrogance. It does that even in the individual kingdom of a human heart. And I'm not stretching this just to, just to stretch it. I mean it. I mean, we, there's, a, there's a little humanistic kingdom inside here. 
There's a, a humanistic kingdom inside your own heart where you rule yourself. When this stone strikes out, it, it has to destroy that. In one fell swoop, it has to take away immediately the rule of your own pride, the rule of your own arrogance. And his power is such that he's able to do it. I mean, can a leper change his spots? Who can make crooked what God has made straight? I mean, who can change the heart of a person? Who can really change a person? We try, but who can change a person? Fundamentally, I mean, root and branch. I'm not talking about who can channel a river slightly in another direction. I'm talking about who can regenerate. I'm talking about who can make a new person. Who can take an old, proud man steeped in sin, like Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, and turn him into a little child? Who can do that? God can. God could take Naaman, the great captain of the Syrian army, who was so proud that even though he was rotten with leprosy, he wouldn't stoop down to go into Elisha's house to ask a favor of him because he was the great commander-in-chief of the Syrian army. But when at last he was prevailed upon just to dip in the river Jordan for the sake of his health and his soul, He became like a little child. When you see him interacting with Elisha, he couldn't serve him enough. Who can do that? Who can do that but God? But it's not with the weapons of the world. It's not with swords and spears like the kingdoms of these worlds were established. They were all established by the power of the sword. But this is not by might. It's not by power. But by my spirit, saith the Lord. There is power in this kingdom. And who would have thought it looking upon it? This is the point, you see. All this is irrelevant with the second coming. Everybody knows that what's coming is glorious and mighty. But with the first coming, it's a total surprise. It's not the tank or the bomb that we use. We don't use a suicide vest. The kind of the destruction that we want in the world is one that brings the peaceful kingdom of the Messiah into the hearts of all men, women, and children. And that's never accomplished by the weapons of the world. They are carnal, but the power of this kingdom is mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. You'll notice the growth of the kingdom too. Although it doesn't explicitly say that it's not instantaneous, You don't get the idea from the vision that the stone just simply transforms into a mountain, that it pops out and inflates, rather that it just simply grows. Probably even while the other elements are merging and coalescing and gradually scattering to the four winds, this stone is growing and growing, as though their destruction was coupled with the growth of this kingdom. Yes, it grows, and it grows to fill the whole earth. Like the mustard seed, and like the leaven, working its way through the bread, and the mustard seed, so small amongst the garden herbs, it eventually becomes the greatest of the herbs. It becomes effectively a tree, and even the birds of the air lodge in its branches. So the kingdom of Christ grows. Now quickly, just Three questions. 
First, when was this blow struck? When did the stone actually hit the image? And of course you'll notice that it did hit it. It, it, This fifth kingdom doesn't just inherit the others. It's not a case that that the fourth merges into the fifth. As the gold merged into the silver and the silver into the bronze and the bronze into the iron, this one comes across it and hits conflict. And I think that leads us to our answer right away. The moment at which it struck was the moment on which Christ died on the cross. Um, How could we minimize the importance of that event? There has been nothing like it, ever, and never will be. The cross changes everything in lots of ways. It changed the history of the world. It is the decisive event in the story of the world. Jesus himself said so. Just uh, on the eve, more or less, of his crucifixion, now, he said, is the judgment of this world. Literally in the Greek, now is the crisis of this world. The critical point. Why? Well, he says two things are going to happen. Now is the judgment of this world, the crisis of this world. First, the prince of this world shall be cast out. That's going to happen with the cross. Satan is going to lose his oversight in a large measure, and I am going to replace him, he says. I, if I am lifted up, and uh, lifting up there doesn't just mean on the cross, it means lifting up out of the ground and lifted up to heaven in ascension, kingly glory. I, if I be lifted up, he says, I will draw all men unto me. Everything's changed now. Everything's changed with the cross. Sometimes we all need to get that into our heads. As as unbelievers, you need to get that into your heads. The, The kind of battle that's going on in this world between good and evil, the decisive blow has been struck. I mean, it's over. The war's finished. Somebody once described what's going on now as a mopping up operation. I know it doesn't feel like that, but the blow has been struck. Christ slew principalities and powers. He spoiled them and made a show of them openly. He is victorious. Christ died, yes. He rose and ascended to the right hand of God. And according to Psalm 110, he stretched out his rod of government. And the first clear indication of it was the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit, as a conquering spirit, was sent into the world. That was the advent of the kingdom of heaven in might and in power. That was the sign that the stone which the builders rejected had become the chief cornerstone. That was the sign that he was the king. The Lord laughed indeed. I have set my chosen king upon Zion. Therefore, through the rod of the gospel, let all the kings of the earth and the judges of the earth be wise and be taught. Pay homage to the Son, lest you aside are cast. Again, you'll notice the kingdom of heaven is here. Now. We're not waiting for it. It's here and now. When is the statue actually destroyed? Well, I think you can see that in two senses. 
First of all, in terms of the victory of the cross, the destruction is imminent. I mean immediate. That Christ there dealt a death blow to humanism. The statue fractured before it scattered. There is a there's a kind of death blow, apparently. I'm not really sure about this. I tried some time ago to, to look into it. But there's a, apparently there's a kind of death blow that can be given in martial arts which takes quite a while to kick in. Pardon the expression, but uh, it, it works like that. Apparently there's some kind of blow that's inflicted and the person can walk around for quite a while and death occurs later. During that, person, th- that process, th- the death blow has been struck. It has been struck. Christ struck a death blow. The nation that shall not serve Messiah shall come to nothing, God said. In Isaiah 60, verse 12. How true that is. There is a Messiah reigning just now in heaven, and the nation that shall not serve him shall come to nothing. That's guaranteed. Why? Because they don't acknowledge him. They're dead already. We, too, if we are unbelievers, remember what Christ says of us, that we are already under the judgment of God. We're already doomed. We are perishing. He doesn't say we will perish. We are perishing. Christ is now king. These kingdoms may last and linger in their own way. And I think, in a sense, the statue, I would agree that the ten toes do represent a kind of ongoing life in the statue, But you see, the power of the impact is such that it doesn't matter whether the kingdoms are past or whether the kingdoms are future, they're fractured and they're finished. That's the point. It doesn't matter where or when they are, they are fractured and they are finished because I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. These kingdoms don't reign. The prince of this world doesn't reign. The god of this world doesn't reign anymore. He has been replaced. The power that he used to exercise over such a large sphere of the world has been taken away. Oh, he's able to do a lot of damage, granted. But the Messiah reigns and he rules. And the kingdom's growth, well, it's the same. Just as the image takes a while to disintegrate and to scatter, so the, Im- so the kingdom takes its own time to grow. Um, but it is growing still. We look at it and we wonder at it. Our hearts, sometimes like Eli, trembles for the ark of God. We see apostasy, we see a falling away. But we see risings and new life and new breathing in other places. The psalmist speaks of a day and the prophet speaks of a day when the kingdoms assemble all to praise God. The psalm there speaks of the kings and the judges giving a royal kiss of assent to the Messiah. Isaiah, looking forward to the future glory of the church, sees a day when kings shall become foster fathers to the church and when queens become nursing mothers. What a picture that is. The church has always been used, you see, to kings and queens being their opponents and their enemies. But Isaiah sees a day when the kings shall be foster fathers, adopting a church under their care, and when a queen shall be a nursing mother. A nursing mother. 
A nursing mother is not a protector only, is it? A nursing mother is someone who feeds and nourishes. It means that the rulers of the kingdoms of this earth will put their resources into the church of God, into her mission, that she would flourish inside their own kingdom. Such a day is prophesied. Such a day is prophesied. And it doesn't matter what things look like. I mean, when were you ever told to walk by sight? What matters is what's written. What's matter, what matters is the glory that is yet to come. And that shall be. And it will be a great day when it occurs. And the Lord is able to change it like that. Just in two minutes, you'll notice the effect of the dream and its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar isn't angry. In a way, you'd expect him to be. Maybe he's just happy that the statue isn't somehow just himself and that his own death isn't imminent. I don't know. Maybe he's happy that his own place in history is secure as the head of gold. I don't know. I just don't know. One thing sure, he's still a very proud man and God's going to deal with his pride in chapter 4. But for now, he falls prostrate in front of Daniel. He wants incense burned. The fact that it's not recorded that Daniel refused it doesn't entitle us to think that he accepted incense. As for Daniel, his courage was rewarded. It wasn't easy to give this message to the king that that he was going to lose his place eventually. The death sentence was reversed for himself and for all the wise men in the kingdom, and he's honored. He's made the ruler of the province of Babylon, which is, of course, the central province of the kingdom. He becomes the ruler, effectively a kind of mayor of the main city of the kingdom. And over that, he's appointed the chief of the wise men. And Daniel is able to secure promotion for his close friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Uh, God's work is moving on. He's, he's maneuvering people into place. He uses people's righteousness and people's sins, but he brings people into place. Um, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are going to discover that it's not always uh, a plus point to be appointed. Sometimes it puts you in a firing line, quite literally. Um, Nebuchadnezzar too will discover that God's not finished with him. But these are for another day. Let us pray. Eternal God, we pray that you would hasten the day when Sheba's king and Seba's king and the kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring their offerings to King Messiah. O oh, hasten the day when there shall be a new glory over the face of the earth. Hasten that day when it shall be unusual for people to die under a hundred years of age and where it will be an unusual thing for an infant to die. These days are spoken of and they must surely come to pass. Help us then to labor in this cause that when we look at it often with the eyes of sense, seems so low and almost seems doomed to failure. Help us to labor in it as a people who see differently, a people who look on eternal things and who know that this stone is growing and becoming a great mountain.
In Jesus' name, amen. Our last uh, singing is in the psalm that we sang last, Psalm 72, page uh, 314, at verse 16. That's page 314, Psalm 72 at verse 16. And the tune is Effingham, and we know these verses very well. I suppose they're historically attached to Scottish Presbyterian communions because we look forward to the growth of this kingdom. And notice the unpromising beginning here in verse 16. Just a handful of corn on the tops of the mountains, but with prosperous fruit it shall shake like trees on Lebanon that be. And here is God's city, shall be flourishing. Her citizens abound in number shall like to the grass that grows upon the ground. That's citizens of God's city on this world. And his name forever shall endure. Last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him and blessed all nations shall him call. And blessed be the Lord our God, the God of Israel, for he alone doth wondrous works in glory that excel. And blessed be his glorious name to all eternity. And here you have it, the whole earth let his glory fill. Amen. And so let it be. These last five stanzas, let's stand and sing them.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.